Merry Christmas! I'm Cassie and this is Crime and Cassie and All Things Creepy. If you're new here, then welcome. Every episode, I like to talk to you guys about a true crime case that has taken over my brain. Spooky episodes coming soon. If you're not new here, then welcome back, my loves. You guys know I love a theme and today is no exception. Is anybody else slacking this year? I've bought almost nothing. I've wrapped no gifts. I mean, I always procrastinate this time of year, but this year it's next level. I need to get my shit together. What about you? If you're slacking, you're not alone. And if you're not slacking, then go you, you little overachiever. But I wanna hear everybody's plans, everybody's traditions. What are they? What are you guys doing this year? So I have like a list of potential episodes that I've had before I even started the podcast whenever, you know, I first decided to do it. And this year I was thinking, okay, I wanna do something Christmassy or at least something that happened in December and nothing was clicking for me. If I do an episode, I want to, in that moment, feel connected to it. And just nothing, you know, I wasn't connecting to anything. And then I'm cleaning out my DVR and I get to my last recording and it happens to be an episode that happens right before Christmas. And then I looked and it was on my list. Didn't even know what happened in December. So everything happens for a reason. It happens to take place in December of 1979. So today we're gonna to be talking about the murder of a beautiful teenager named Michelle Martinko. Michelle Marie Martinko was born October 6th, 1961 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Doesn't that sound like the most wholesome place in the world? I don't know about that, but during my research, I have discovered that it's the largest corn processing city in the world. So there you go, a little tidbit about Cedar Rapids. Michelle has a close-knit family consisting of dad Albert, mom Janet, and older sister Janelle. She had a wonderful childhood, but it wasn't without hard times. She had scoliosis and had to wear a back brace all through middle school. Kids are mean, but especially in the 70s. They didn't give a shit about bullying in the 70s. I mean, it's okay. Now we just have the internet, guys, where everybody's nice all the time. It's believed that these tough times of being known as the girl in the back brace are a huge reason why Michelle remained so kind and so humble because you guys all hail the glow up queen. She hit high school and bam, she looks like Farrah Fawcett. So she's at Cedar Rapids Kennedy High School and looks aside, she's thriving. She excelled at school. She was a talented baton twirler. She sang in the choir. She turns 18 in October of 1979 and she's in her senior year. That's one of the most exciting times of your life. She plans on attending Iowa State and plans on majoring in interior design. Michelle's described as a girly girl and one of the hangout spots for Michelle and kids all around the Cedar Rapids area is the Westdale Mall. It's brand spanking new. It had just opened up in October of 1979. And you know, it's the spot for teenagers. On the night of December 19th, 1979, so we're talking like what, six days before Christmas, Michelle had a school choir Christmas banquet and she was super dressed up. Black dress, rabbit fur coat, dressed to the nines. She documented with pictures, of course, because you have to. Christmas chorus concerts were the best, I can confirm. Michelle ends up asking her good friend Jane, you know, you wanna go to the mall with me after the choir banquet? 
but Jane has homework, so she says, I can't go. They have school the next day. She probably wanted to make the most out of her outfit. She's newly single. She's feeling herself, as she should. So she gets in her parents' 1972 Buick Allegra and heads to the brand new Westdale Mall. She had about $180 in cash on her to buy a coat that her mom had picked out. She gets there and she sees her friend Kurt. He's working at the Chess Kings men's store. And when Kurt looked at her, he didn't even recognize her at first. He's like, who is this knockout walking in? Again, she's dressed to the nines. They end up talking, chatting a bit. And they decide he's on break. Let's go for a walk. It was a platonic relationship, so much so that when he walks past his crush at the mall, he's like, oh no, I just ruined my shot. She sees me walk around with this gorgeous girl, aka Michelle, and she's gonna think that that's my girlfriend. They part ways and soon enough, it's pretty late and Michelle's mom is noticing that she's not home yet. Now at this point, it's well after the mall would have closed, so she immediately starts calling around. She then tries calling the police. They pretty much blow her off and say, oh, she'll show up. So she ends up calling Jane. And Jane's like, I wasn't able to go with her. You know, I had homework. I couldn't go. So at that point, her mom starts panicking and she calls police again. Thankfully, they dispatch an officer. Officer Jim Kincaid gets to the mall around 4 a.m. If you don't hear Officer Kincaid and immediately think of Detective Kincaid and Scream 3, a.k.a. McDreamy, we can't be friends. Just kidding, we can still be friends. Officer Kincaid gets there and he sees that the parking lot is dark, deserted. Nobody's there. It's been closed down. Again, it's like 4 a.m. So it's been closed down for a while. Then all the way at the end of the parking lot in JCPenney, he sees a car by itself. The windows were frosted up. It was hard for him to really see anything from a distance. Again, it's December. He opens the back door and he sees what he describes as a woman slouched down. And he's thinking, okay, this is probably just an intoxicated person. He then looks through the passenger side door and he sees it's a young woman slumped halfway off the passenger seat. He sees blood everywhere and can tell she has what appears to be multiple stab wounds. The young woman is deceased and he can tell by looking at her that it's 18-year-old Michelle Martinko. Soon enough, it's a full-on crime scene. It looks like a frenzied attack. There's blood spatter everywhere. They find all these glove prints. To them, it looked like dishwashing gloves that you would have had in the 70s or 80s. They're thinking that this killer came prepared. They can tell that Michelle fought hard. She had so many defensive wounds. They see that she had been stabbed 29 times in her face, neck, and chest. The struggle took place mostly on the passenger side, but there's blood on the steering wheel and on the gear shift. So they gather that the killer cut himself and then left blood after attacking her. They collect blood samples, but this is the 1970s, so the best they can do is blood typing. There were no obvious signs of sexual assault, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't sexually motivated. Not every killer gets off on the struggle. Sometimes they panic and bolt. Police inform Michelle's parents, and by the time the news makes its way to her sister Janelle, it's about 5 to 6 a.m., Janelle was 12 years older than Michelle, and for so long, she was an only child. So when Michelle was born, she was like the little light of their family's life. She was the miracle child, the perfect daughter, the perfect sister, so much potential. So her family are obviously devastated. 
An investigation begins and, you know, you got to start with the boyfriends. This seems like a personal attack. They start with a guy named Mike. Mike was a year ahead of Michelle in school and they were, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend. And they ended up breaking up when Mike left for college the previous year. They ended on good terms. She then starts dating this guy named Andy. And by the time it's her senior year, she wants to focus on her schoolwork. She wants to focus on getting into college. So she ends things and Andy doesn't take it well. He does not want to let go. Police also want to talk to Kurt, the friend of Michelle's that was working at the mall that she ended up going on a walk with right before her murder. On the morning of December 20th, Kurt is in school. It's a school day and his principal walks in and he's like, hey, I need you to come with me. And he has these officers with him and he's like, I want you to come talk to these officers. And soon enough, they're full on interrogating him about what he had done the night before. After hours, they drop the news. Michelle was murdered. Kurt is stunned and sad and they're like, why did you kill her? You were last seen with her. They then talk to his store manager who says that he went on a break and returned at 930 and then helped his store manager close down that store until about 10. Police believe that Michelle left the mall somewhere in that half an hour. So he's alibied out. They tell Kurt, you're free to go. And after that, he's kind of left with this guilt of, I should have walked her to her car. If I would have done that, she would still be alive. They start speaking to Michelle's family about, hey, who do you think, you know, could have done this? And they say, we know exactly who did it. It was her ex-boyfriend, Andy. They say that Andy was possessive. And after they broke up, he would stake out their house to see if she was leaving and going on dates with other guys. So they question old Andrew and they're like, where were you the night of the murder? And he's like, well, I was actually at the mall and I had stopped and talked to Michelle. I was there to buy her a present. Mind you, they are broken up. He says that he and a buddy had bumped into Michelle around 8.30. He said he had no idea Michelle was even missing until her mom called at about 3 a.m. And then he and his mom had immediately went out searching. Police are suspicious, obviously, but they have no physical evidence connecting Andy to anything. The rumor mills start swirling, and there were allegations that Michelle had been involved in drug rings and sex work. Yeah, this super wholesome choir chick is involved in the seedy underbelly of Cedar Rapids. It really affected her family that people would call her reputation into question. Cedar Rapids, by the way, in those days was quote, very Mayberry-like, so this rumor is just ridiculous. With no concrete evidence linking anyone to Michelle's murder, her case unfortunately goes cold. Soon enough, it's the 90s, and in 1997, they end up taking scrapings from that gear shift, and they send it off to see if they can get a DNA sample. They end up getting a partial profile, and at the time, that's not enough. So then, kind of goes cold again. And then now we're in 2005. In 2005, they send out Michelle's whole ass dress and they get a full DNA profile. They then submit that full profile to CODIS and they're like, okay, we're bound to get a hit, right? Nope, nothing. So they're like, okay, we're gonna go back. We're gonna start testing everybody possibly linked to the case so that we can at least start ruling them out. But come on, I know it's Andy, you know it's Andy. Let's just seal this deal. 
and her family is thinking the same thing. So they ask him for a sample and he consents. They test it and boom, Andy is cleared. He lived for so long under this giant cloud of suspicion. If there had not been DNA evidence, I would still be thinking it was Andy. I mean, it seemed so personal and the fact that he had seen her at basically the crime scene right before the murder, what are the chances? She wasn't robbed. There were no obvious signs of sexual assault. It's crazy and scary how bad it can look for someone that's totally innocent. The next on the docket is Kurt. You were last seen with her. It's gotta be you, dude. But Kurt consents, he gives his sample and boom, Kurt cleared. What is happening? Let's take another shot in the dark here. She has the other ex-boyfriend, Mike. He wasn't anywhere around here, but whatever, let's just test it. And boom, obviously Mike is cleared. Now they're back to square one and another decade passes. It's 2015 and now they have a new lead investigator named Matt Denlinger. Denlinger takes a fresh look at the case file. This is a crazy long case file. Decade after decade, new investigators had sifted through it and added things to it. They had any and everybody who would have possibly crossed paths with Michelle or even was just at the mall. So he's like, you know what? We'll literally start swabbing everybody and eventually something's got to hit. 125 tests later, nothing. Then they get involved with a little company called Parabon. Parabon was a private lab and they would take DNA samples to create an image to basically create a police sketch of the suspect. They end up making three sketches of the potential suspect, one around the age of 25, one around the age of what they would believe he would be now, about 50, and then one with a 1979 haircut. They end up releasing them to the public, but they basically get so many calls because the sketch looks like anybody. Then Parabon calls them back and they're like, hey, we just did this other crazy thing with DNA. You know how we do. But um, yeah, we just solved the Golden State Killer case. Have you heard of it? May we do the same in Michelle's case? And they're like, yes, you can. So they sent it off in the spring of 2018. And by that summer, they get a report back saying they have found a relative of the killer. They end up finding a second cousin once removed. I have no idea what that means, but luckily they do, so stick with me. It's a woman who lives in Vancouver, Washington. So now they have to build the family tree with the help of this woman, luckily. They end up tracing it back to the early 1800s. They're able to create four branches of the family tree. They test one person of the first branch, which is in Ohio, and it comes back no match to the killer. In the next branch, they test it and it's someone from Nebraska and that ends up being no match to the killer. So we can cross off branch number two. The third branch happens to connect to someone in Iowa. Let's go. It's a woman in Iowa who lives about 20 minutes from Cedar Rapids. They test her DNA and she shares DNA with the killer. So boom, that's our branch. We can eliminate that fourth branch. It turns out she's a first cousin to the suspect and she only has three first cousins who happen to be three brothers, the Burns brothers. And then there were three. 
all three brothers live in Iowa and none of them have criminal records. So there's no way of getting their DNA samples through that. So they decide to collect them secretly. They start with middle brother, Kenneth. He was a married father of three. He sold farm equipment and they determined he's not it. Next on the list is the oldest brother, Donald. He's also a father of three and a grandfather and he was a retired manager of a lumber yard. They ended up finding, I guess, his toothbrush and his garbage. They test it and nope, not him. Now we're left with the baby of the family. It's youngest brother, Jerry. Jerry lives in Manchester, Iowa. The year of the murder, 1979, he had two young children. He sold farm implements. He was in a bowling league and he was still living in Manchester. Now the police are staking him out and Jerry ends up going to a pizza place. So they're watching him from a safe distance and Jerry gets up to throw his drink away. Detectives wait for him to leave. Then they go in, they grab that drink and let's test it. They test it and finally we have a match. 100 billion to one. Jerry Burns matches the DNA sample taken from Michelle's vehicle on December 19th, 2018, 39 years to the day that Michelle was murdered. Detective Denlinger goes to Jerry's place of business and he has a hidden camera in his travel mug and he's like, okay, I'm going to surprise interview Jerry. The entire time of the interview, Jerry's cat Bella is walking back and forth in front of this hidden camera. And as serious and intense as this interview is, it's so funny because it, pets are so ridiculous. They don't care what's going on. Am I right? They decide to tell a little white lie to Jerry and say, oh, we're talking to you about this case because somebody had called in a tip saying you looked like that sketch we released. Remember that? They just want to kind of gauge his reaction. Jerry's calm, he's polite, and he basically just says, yeah, I didn't know Michelle. And they're like, buddy, we have your DNA. He keeps saying, test the DNA, test the DNA, test the DNA, and he's just cool as a cucumber. And they're like, bro, we did three times to make sure, like it's yours. And what's weird is he never denies it. He just keeps saying, test the DNA, test the DNA. What's also weird is during the interview, Jerry brings up the mysterious disappearance of Jody Husentrout. And I'm not gonna dive too much into that right now because I'm definitely gonna cover that case eventually because it has baffled me for years and years. Just a really quick overview. Jody was this news anchor who one day right before work had disappeared from the parking lot outside of her apartment complex. This happened in Mason City, Iowa, which was only two hours away from where Jerry lived. Jody to this day has never been found and the Mason City Police never said one way or another if they had been investigating Jerry or not. And to play devil's advocate, there was nothing that ever linked him to Jody's disappearance. And it's possible, I think, that maybe he was just throwing it out there in hopes of whoever maybe does get caught for Jody's disappearance. They'll think, oh, that's probably who murdered Michelle too. So again, they're interviewing him they tell him we have your DNA and this is 39 years to the day that she was murdered. They arrest Jerry Burns for first degree murder. Isn't it crazy how we see that happen so often? It'll be like right about the same day or on the exact same day so many years later. It's crazy. Jerry's family says it's impossible. He is innocent. He is a good man. The DNA is wrong. Just no. Investigators end up finding what's described as violent or deviant pornography, specifically blondes, I guess, on Jerry's computers. 
And Jerry's defense attorney ends up filing a motion to bar that evidence at trial during a pretrial hearing and the judge agrees. So now they only have the DNA evidence to go on. In February of 2020, trial begins. Michelle's sister, Janelle, and her husband, John, travel from Florida just to be there. Janelle and John had been married when Michelle passed, and he's been right there with her through this whole thing. Michelle's parents, Albert and Janet, had died in 1995 and in 1998. So it had only been Janelle and John fighting for Michelle since then. The defense says that investigators mishandled evidence and DNA transfer occurred, saying that Jerry could have left his DNA at the mall, on a door, or on a bench, because he did admit that he had gone to that mall before. Anyway, then that it had gotten transferred to Michelle's dress and she had sat on the bench or brushed up against a doorknob, and that's how it happened. The jury deliberates for barely three hours, and they quickly come back with a verdict. He ends up being found guilty for murder in the first degree and is sentenced to life without parole. He's currently in Anamosa State Penitentiary and is appealing. This probably could mean nothing, but I think it's just worth mentioning because I found it a little bit in my research. But Jerry's wife, Patricia, had actually died in 2008 and it was ruled a suicide. And his cousin, Brian, went missing on December 19th, 2013 and has never been found. When Jerry was arrested, the rumor mill started going that maybe he could be involved in one or both of those incidents, but he's never been charged in anything regarding either one of those, but it is very, very odd. The Westdale Mall ended up closing down in 2014, and I think it's probably for the best. I feel like I would not want to go anywhere near that parking lot, and just trying to imagine what Michelle went through this happened right before Christmas. Her poor family, poor Michelle, this just is so sad, so senseless. Now to a brief overview of this week's missing persons case. 16-year-old Susanna Morales was walking home from a friend's house between Singleton Road, Norcross, Georgia, and Indian Trail, Norcross, on July 26th around 9 p.m., her location shows her at the entrance of her neighborhood, and then her location changes to the opposite direction in a car. Allegedly, one of her friends got a text message saying that she might be in danger. Her last location was near an apartment complex in Norcross, Georgia, that is located near Mead Creek High School, which is also in Norcross, Georgia. And her location disappears, and she hasn't been seen or heard from since. Susana Morales is a Latina female. She is five foot two, weighs 112 pounds. And when she was last seen, she was wearing a yellow tank top, light blue jeans, white Crocs, carrying a small purse. If you have seen or have a possible sighting of her, please take a picture and contact Winnet County, Georgia Police Department at 770-531-5300 or text 470-331-9117. I'm wishing everyone a Merry Christmas or whatever you celebrate. I hope it's amazing and filled with love. I know this time of year can be stressful as is. And if you're going through something extra right now, I'm sending you all the prayers, all the love, all the good vibes. Put on some Instinct Holiday Radio. Works every time for me. You can follow me on social media everywhere at CrimeXCassie. And remember to like and subscribe. And if you're listening in podcast form, you know, throw out a review. 
As always, lock your doors, wear your SPF, and never ever sit on a bench at a mall because they will take your DNA and link you to a murder that you definitely didn't commit.